This is a recording of Is the Book of Mormon a Pseudo-Archaic Text? by Stanford Carmack, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, read by Victor Worth. Abstract. In recent years, the Book of Mormon has been compared to pseudo-biblical texts like Gilbert J. Hunt's The Late War, 1816. Some have found strong linguistic correspondence and declared that there is an authorial relationship. However, comparative linguistic studies performed to date have focused on data with low probative value vis-à-vis the question of authorship. What has been lacking is non-trivial descriptive linguistic analysis that focuses on less contextual and more complex types of data, such as syntax and morphosyntax, grammatical features such as verb agreement and inflection, as well as data less obviously biblical and or less susceptible to conscious manipulation. Those are the kinds of linguistic studies that have greater probative value in relation to authorship, and that can determine whether Joseph Smith might have been able to produce Book of Mormon grammar. In order to determine whether it is a good match with the form and structure of pseudo-biblical writings, I investigate nearly ten kinds of syntax and morphosyntax that occur in the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible, comparing their usage with each other and with that of four pseudo-biblical texts. Findings are summarized toward the end of the article, along with some observations on biblical hypercorrection and alternative LDS views on Book of Mormon language. This study addresses the degree to which Book of Mormon language differs from that of pseudo-biblical writings in the late 1700s and early 1800s, investigating whether there are small or large differences in form and structure. Pseudo-biblical writings can be considered a control group in relation to the linguistic form and structure that Joseph Smith might have produced had he been attempting to mimic biblical style in 1829. He was repeatedly exposed to King James' idiom growing up. Thus, either adherence to biblical language or deviations from biblical language that are close to pseudo-biblical patterns could support the position that Joseph was the author or English language translator of the Book of Mormon text. On the other hand, there is nothing to indicate that Joseph was well-versed in many early modern English texts when he dictated the Book of Mormon. Hence, large deviations from both biblical and pseudo-biblical patterns that approach attested archaic usage could support the position that Joseph was not its author or English-language translator. By means of deeper linguistic analysis, we can discover whether the influence of pseudo-biblical style on the earliest text of the Book of Mormon is noticeable or, as another possibility, whether there is substantial correspondence in style between pseudo-biblical texts and the Book of Mormon. Are there fundamental structural similarities in syntax and morphosyntax? Alternatively, do low-level differences rule out classifying the Book of Mormon as just another pseudo-biblical literary production? Does the earliest text match early modern English usage sufficiently so that it should not be regarded as a pseudo-archaic text? There is, of course, a very large amount of syntactic data to consider, and much of the syntax would have been produced subconsciously, based as it is on implicit knowledge. Consequently, systematic analysis is possible and meaningful. Careful, thorough investigation of Book of Mormon grammar can therefore go a long way toward telling us whether Joseph could have been the author or English-language translator. Specifically, this study focuses on those grammatical features whose usage patterns are either less noticeable to non-linguists or not as easily imitated. This is a crucial point. Linguistic items that are readily noticed and easily imitated are, at least as far as authorship determination is concerned, trivial and uninteresting.
such items have made up the bulk of the linguistic comparisons that the Book of Mormon has been subjected to up to this point. In contrast, some of the features analyzed for this study are reliably characterized only after rather detailed linguistic analysis. The Pseudo-Biblical Texts Examined The four pseudo-biblical texts examined for this study have been chosen based on frequent comparison to the Book of Mormon and or being prominent, worthy specimens of the genus. The four texts include John Leacock's The First Book of the American Chronicles of the Times, 1774 to 1775, Richard Snowden's The American Revolution, 1793, Michael Linning's The First Book of Napoleon, 1809, and Gilbert Hunt's The Late War, 1816. These four pseudo-biblical texts are freely available in the Word Cruncher Library. The background of these authors is as follows. John Leacock, 1729 to 1802, was a goldsmith and silversmith from Philadelphia. Richard Snowden, 1753 to 1825, was a Quaker from southwest New Jersey. Michael Linning, 1774 to 1838, was a Scottish solicitor, originally from Lanarkshire, near Glasgow. And Gilbert J. Hunt was a manufacturer from New York City. According to Aaron Shalev, Leacock's work was, quote, the most popular writing in biblical style of the Revolutionary Era, close quote. Snowden's two-volume effort was, quote, the first full-blown, thorough, earnest, and mature attempt to biblicize the United States and its historical record, close quote. And Hunt's history of the War of 1812 was, quote, the most impressive text among the numerous published during the opening decades of the 19th century, close quote. A contemporary review of Linning's pseudo-biblical effort found that, quote, the book gives, in language with which they, the Bible-reading public, are best acquainted, a just view of the principle which led to the French Revolution, to the elevation of Bonaparte to the throne of the Bourbons, and to all the miseries under which the continent of Europe has so long groaned, contrasting those miseries with the happiness which Britons, here denominated Albions, enjoy under the mild government of our excellent and amiable sovereign. End of citation. The other primary sources. The critical edition of the Book of Mormon was essential to this study. Royal Skousen, editor, The Book of Mormon, The Earliest Text, New Haven, Connecticut, Yale University Press, 2009. Directly related to this is Skousen, Analysis of Textual Variants of the Book of Mormon, 2nd edition, Provo, Utah, Farms and BYU Studies, 2017. And Skousen, Grammatical Variation, Provo, Utah, Farms and BYU Studies, 2016. LDS View provided access to the current LDS text of the scriptures. The principal English textual source used in this study was the Early English Books Online database, an address to the publicly searchable portion of Early English Books Online Phase 1 texts is given. Other important textual sources include 18th century collections online and Google Books, addresses for which are given in the written version. Observations on Pseudo-Biblical Influence Both LDS and non-LDS perspectives on the Book of Mormon language have tended toward the pseudo-archaic or pseudo-biblical. Two commonly held beliefs are the following. 1. Archaic Book of Mormon usage is not systematically different from King James language. 2. The earliest text is often defective in its implementation of archaic vocabulary and grammar. Many scholars believe Book of Mormon grammar is a flawed imitation of biblical usage. That conclusion, however, has been founded on insufficient grammatical and lexical study. 
A number of LDS scholars believe that because Joseph Smith's mind was saturated with biblical language, he could have produced the text of the Book of Mormon from a mixture of biblical language and his own dialect. Other commentators, whose affiliation is not always known, have drawn similar conclusions. Here is one observation made in 2013 by a blogger who goes by the initials RT on the influence that one pseudo-biblical writing might have had on the formulation of the Book of Mormon text. Quote, in some, linguistic and narrative elements of the Book of Mormon are probably descended at least in part from Gilbert Hunt's pseudo-biblical account of the War of 1812. The relationship between these two literary works is relatively strong, suggesting that the book had quite a memorable impact on Joseph Smith. But Smith did not borrow directly from the late war, at least for the majority of the narrative content, during the process of composing the Book of Mormon. Close quote. For purposes of determining possible influence on authorship, R.T. has focused on linguistic and narrative evidence. However, the linguistic evidence he has considered is not syntactic in character, and there is no discussion of possibly obsolete lexis. Instead, this commentator has concentrated on archaic phrasal and lexical evidence that is rather obviously biblical or that is contextual to a larger degree than syntactic structures are, which can be employed in a wide array of diverse contexts. Phrases and lexical items routinely identifiable as biblical are, of course, more susceptible to imitation. Moreover, they are also less likely to have been produced subconsciously than syntax, so they are of secondary importance in determining authorship influence compared to more complex linguistic studies. Also, the narrative evidence RT has considered is, by its nature, weaker than substantive linguistic evidence from the domains of semantics, morphology, and syntax. Here's another summarizing comment about the Book of Mormon, which one can currently find online. Quote, Joseph most likely grew up reading a school book called The Late War by Gilbert J. Hunt, and it heavily influenced his writing of the Book of Mormon. Close quote. Again, a comparison of phrases and lexical usage shared between the Book of Mormon and the Late War led to this comment. Specifically, the two researchers responsible for this comment carried out an engram comparison between the Book of Mormon and more than 100,000 pre-1830 texts. A significant flaw in the comparisons they made was failing to incorporate many early modern English texts, regularized for spelling and morphology, in their large corpus. Nor is it clear that they used the critical text, the text closest to Joseph Smith's 1829 dictation. In addition, as Benjamin McGuire pointed out in 2013, using different language, engram analyses provide only a brute force approach to the question of authorship, since they ignore constituent structure. To these points, I would add that issues of lemmatization have been ignored as well. Lemmatization involves regularizing words with inflectional differences as equivalent variants of the same lexi. And even many lemmatization efforts cannot remedy the inherent deficiencies of most engram analyses. For example, Nicholas Lees's translation language, quote, do not cause him that he should perform, 1550, is a syntactic match with, quote, causing them that they should, 3 Nephi 2.3. These are both ditransitive causative constructions with repeated pronomials, but such a correspondence isn't caught by standard engram comparisons, nor by narrowly drawn lemmatized comparisons, so that competent linguistic analysis is ultimately needed to determine relevant syntactic matching. 
The website that contains the above comment comparing the late war to the Book of Mormon has a large quantity of material to digest, and the linguistic analysis is confined to phrasal and lexical elements, which have their interest but are contextual in many cases. If there were no syntax, morphosyntax, or obsolete lexis to study, then we would have to content ourselves with studying mostly contextual linguistic evidence, such as we find on this website. But there are other things that can be studied that are either more complex and less contextual, or can be studied in a way that brings out relevant complexity. Hence, the choice of data and methodologies are quite important. As McGuire mentions in his 2013 article, quoting Harold Love, the explosion of available textual data has made intelligent selectivity extremely important. Syntactic studies rank very high in terms of intelligent selectivity. To this may be added studies of potentially obsolete lexis not undertaken here, but soon to be available in Royal Skousen, the nature of the original language. A substantially different version of this paper will be available in that two-part book as section 12. Syntactic studies constitute a richer source of linguistic information and a more reliable data set on which to base conclusions about Book of Mormon authorship. One specific example is the study of relative pronoun selection after human antecedents in earlier English, addressed below. The aforementioned website liberally employs the ellipsis symbol, dot, 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 at, at times in lengthy or discontinuous passages. The way this symbol is used goes against customary practice in quite a few cases and can mislead the unaware. The casual reader is led to believe that there is much more compact correspondence between the Book of Mormon and the late war and other texts than there actually is. This analysis has been referred to by the CES letter, whose latest iteration links to the site rather than incorporating it in the body of the letter. A recent imitation of the CES letter provides the reader with a reprint of some of the color-coded comparisons that are heavy in ellipsis. Another short blog entry to consider is one titled American Pseudo-Bibles and the Book of Mormon. The author, John Turner, quotes Aaron Shalev as suggesting that, quote, the unique combination of the biblical form and style that the Book of Mormon shares with the pseudo-biblical texts, as well as their distinctly American content, provide a case for seeing Smith's book as meaningfully affiliated to that American mode of writing, close quote. This view of things, that pseudo-biblical style and Book of Mormon style are not substantively distinguishable, is only based on superficial linguistic considerations. We must dig deeper before we can be confident that such a view is accurate. Aaron Shalev wrote the following at the end of his, of his article on pseudo-biblicism. Quote, the tradition of writing in a biblical style paved the way for the Book of Mormon by conditioning Americans to reading American texts and text about America in biblical language. Yet, the Book of Mormon, an American narrative told in the English of the King James Bible, has thrived long after Americans abandoned the practice of recounting their affairs in biblical language. It has thus been able to survive and flourish for almost two centuries, not because, but in spite of, the literary ecology of the mid-19th century and after. The Book of Mormon became a testament to a widespread cultural practice of writing in biblical English that could not accommodate to the monumental transformations America endured in the first half of the 19th century. The character of the Book of Mormon's English is a matter that demands special study, not unstudied assumptions. Before Skousen, no one had acknowledged and accepted this reality. Just before final submission of this piece, I was alerted to a recent Purdue University dissertation by Gregory A. Bowen, 
Bowen's thesis examines usage in ten texts and two small corpora, with a focus on the King James Bible and the Book of Mormon. Because the net is cast wide and touches on several linguistic areas, this study is a preliminary one in relation to the Book of Mormon. Hunt's The Late War is one of the 19th century texts examined. Bowen either begins with or comes to an expected academic conclusion. He doesn't explore the possibility that a significant amount of Book of Mormon usage could be genuinely archaic, despite the existence of extra-biblical archaic markers occurring throughout the text. Although he mentions a few, he never pursues lines of inquiry that might have revealed true archaism. In short, there is good material in this thesis, but it doesn't approach lexical and grammatical issues that might be dispositive of the authorship question. Bowen concludes that some heavy usage of archaisms found in the Book of Mormon were biblical hypercorrections by Joseph Smith. In the case at hand, a hypercorrection is a presumed overuse by Joseph of a prestigious biblical form. The issue of biblical hypercorrection will be addressed at various points in this study. One item of archaic vocabulary that Bowen tracked was the adjective wroth. This word is a strong marker of archaism because the early English Books Online database clearly shows that usage rates dropped off significantly during the first half of the early modern era. He classifies the Book of Mormon's high-frequency wroth usage as a biblical hypercorrection, since its textual rate exceeds that of the King James Bible, 90 words per million versus 64 words per million. In this case, however, the close synonym angry could have been considered as well. If we include angry in calculations and determine a relative rate of archaism, we find that the King James Bible is 53% wroth, 49 of 93, and that the Book of Mormon is only 26% wroth, 24 of 93. As a result, even though the absolute rate of wrath in the Book of Mormon is greater than it is in the King James Bible, the Book of Mormon's archaic wrath to angry rate is half that of the King James Bible. This extra bit of analysis, which recognizes the importance of also considering the close synonym angry, reveals that the Book of Mormon's high rate of wrath is partly due to archaism and partly due to a higher textual frequency of the notion angry. In summary, after duly considering a variety of evidence, a number of critics and researchers have concluded that the Book of Mormon isn't genuinely archaic, and that its language is close to that of Gilbert J. Hunt's The Late War, and similarly styled texts. Some see direct influence from The Late War, others see indirect influence. Yet no one has drilled down to the foundational elements of style beyond shared lexical and phrasal usage in context and simple morphological studies. All have ignored the independent archaic semantic usage, syntactic structure, and in-depth morphosyntactic research. Those are the things that can tell us most reliably and convincingly whether the Book of Mormon is similar to pseudo-biblical texts in terms of style and archaism. My primary concern in this study is with syntactic structure and morphosyntax. To my knowledge, a substantive syntactic comparison of the Book of Mormon with pseudo-biblical writings has never been performed. There is much to compare. I only touch on a few things here. Summary of Analyses Topics covered include agentive of and by, lest syntax, relative pronoun usage with personal antecedents, paraphrastic did, more part usage, had, been, spake, the th plural, and verbal complementation after five common verbs, as well as the adjective desirous. 
agentive of and by. In most syntactic domains, Book of Mormon archaism turns out to be different from that of the King James Bible, while exceeding that of the four pseudo-biblical writings. The following is one example. Agentive of is biblical syntax, but it is the kind that was apparently more difficult for pseudo-biblical authors to imitate. Its use is less obvious than that of lexical items like thou, saith, unto, or past tense, spake. To this we may also add the prominent lexical phrase, it came to pass. In late Middle English, just before the early modern period, the chief preposition used in passive constructions to indicate the agent was of, later giving way to by. Late Middle English ended around the time William Caxton began to print books in English in the final quarter of the 15th century, and early modern English continued to the end of the 17th century. An example is the following sentence from a book found in the Early English Books Online database. God requireth the law to be kept of all men, 1528. By the late modern period, this expression would have almost always been worded, God requires the law to be kept by all men. A Book of Mormon example is, Moses was commanded of the Lord, 1 Nephi 17.26, equivalent to Moses was commanded by the Lord. Royal Skousen has carried out systematic but incomplete sampling of past participles followed by either agentive of or by in the two scriptural texts, mostly from an inspection of the syntax of regular verbs ending in ed that are immediately followed by of or by and then animate agent. I have done the same for the four pseudo-biblical writings. This research has yielded the following estimates. Estimated agentive of rates. King James Bible, 72%. Book of Mormon, 46%. Scottish pseudo-biblical text, less than 20%. American pseudo-biblical texts, less than 10%. In this domain, we find that the King James Bible has the greatest archaism, followed by the Book of Mormon, and followed more distantly by the four pseudo-biblical writings. The one by the Scottish author, Matthew Linning, comes closest to the scriptural texts in its level of archaism at less than 20% agentive of. The Book of Mormon exhibits considerable biblical influence, while the pseudo-biblical texts exhibit slight biblical influence. The King James Bible favors the use of agentive of, estimated at 72%, but there are still significant levels of use of agentive by. The Book of Mormon slightly favors the use of agentive by, estimated at 54%, but there is almost as much agentive of usage. In contrast, the four pseudo-biblical writings do not use much agentive of, strongly preferring the modern alternative. The kind of verb and agent involved in the syntax influence the selection of the agentive preposition, of or by, complicating matters. Yet, the large differences in agentive of rates permit one to reliably observe that while the Book of Mormon is quite archaic in agentive of usage, pseudo-biblical writings are not, especially the American ones. Agentive of is used with a wide variety of verbs in the scriptural texts, and the usage in many cases is not overlapping. In other words, the King James Bible employs agentive of with some verbs quite frequently, whereas the Book of Mormon does not. The Book of Mormon also employs agentive of with some verbs quite frequently, while the King James Bible does not. An example of this is the passive construction, commanded of or by. The King James Bible has four examples of commanded by, but no examples of commanded of. The Book of Mormon has nine examples of commanded of, and three examples of commanded by. 
This means it is not inaccurate to state that the Book of Mormon's agent of of usage approaches but is independent of biblical usage. This is statistically verifiable. Pseudo-biblical texts are not that archaic in this regard, especially the three American ones. Of the four pseudo-biblical writings considered in this study, the Scottish one contains the highest rate of agent of usage, estimated to be 15%. This is about one-third the rate found in the Book of Mormon. The three American pseudo-biblical writings have been estimated to be below 10% in their agent of usage. Some details follow. Leacock's text, 1774-1775, has no examples of agent of of out of about 10 possibilities. The agent of of rate in this text is 0%. Snowden's text, 1793, has three instances of beloved of the people, 514, 1913, 26-2. The estimated agent of of rate in this text is 7%, three of 43 regular verbs. There are also three instances of beloved by, with various noun phrases, 3.13, 45.7, and 52.3. Linning's text, 1809, has four instances of agent of of, despised of men, twice, 12.7 and 14.2, favored of heaven, 14.5, and approved of men, 21.19. The estimated agent of of rate in this text is 15%, four of 27 regular verbs. Hunt's text, 1816, has only one example of agent of of. The king was possessed of an evil spirit, 114. The estimated agent of of rate in this text is 2.5%, one of 40 regular verbs. Lest syntax. Next we consider the syntax of sentences that occur after the conjunction lest. The 1611 King James Bible consistently employs the subjunctive mood in sentences following this conjunction. About 80% of the time, no modal auxiliary verb is used. This, of course, means that about 20% of the time, a modal auxiliary verb is used with an infinitive after lest, most frequently should. A fairly comprehensive search of the 1611 King James Bible, including the Apocrypha, yielded 63 lest should constructions. This tally is probably close to the actual figure and is equivalent to a textual rate of 68 words per million. But because lest should usage continued into the late modern period robustly, after the year 1700, use of lest should syntax in pseudo-biblical texts isn't actually a good candidate for possible biblical hypercorrection. Some of it could represent late modern usage. A few details of lest constructions in the other texts are the following. The Book of Mormon employs a modal auxiliary verb in sentences after lest about 80% of the time, usually should. It has much higher levels of modal auxiliary usage after lest than the biblical text does. Its 44 lest should constructions translate to a rate of 175 words per million, 2.6 times the biblical rate. Leacock's American Chronicle, 1774-1775, and Linning's Book of Napoleon, 1809, have six and five instances of lest, respectively, without any following modal auxiliary usage. These pseudo-biblical texts are more closely aligned with biblical patterns than the other two pseudo-biblical texts. Richard Snowden's The American Revolution, 1793, has 14 lest-should constructions, a rate of 284 words per million. Snowden's lest-should rate is more than four times that of the King James Bible and higher than the Book of Mormon's. 
Gilbert J. Hunt's The Late War, 1816, has six instances of lest, and five times the sentences that follow employ a modal auxiliary, three with should and two with might. Its lest should rate of 70 words per million is very close to the biblical rate. Continuing our investigation, we find that there is only one short passage in the entire King James Bible, including the Apocrypha, where the modal auxiliary verb shall occurs in sentences following lest. 2 Corinthians 12.20-21 For I fear, lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not. And lest, when I come again, my God will humble me among you and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already. The phrase, when I come, may have triggered the shall usage. This passage also has a simple case of lest there be, not shown, as well as one instance of the auxiliary verb will, my God will humble me. In descending order of frequency, the auxiliaries most commonly found in the early modern English textual record after the conjunction lest are should, might, may, would, will, and shall, based on extensive searches of the Early English Books Online Phase 1 database. Consequently, we wouldn't have expected there to be many lest constructions with shall in the King James Bible, and this expectation is borne out by the text. Taking into account the close to one million words found in the 1611 Bible, including the Apocrypha, these three instances mean that the lest shall rate of the biblical text is 3.2 words per million. Because lest shall usage did not continue into the late modern period robustly, heavier usage in other texts could qualify as biblical hypercorrection. Yet, the four pseudo-biblical writings do not have any examples of lest shall syntax. As noted, Snowden's The American Revolution and Hunt's The Late War do have lest should constructions, 14 and 3 instances respectively, but the other two pseudo-biblical texts do not. So, lest should syntax, which is both biblical and persistent usage, is fairly well represented in the pseudo-biblical set, while the lest shall usage of 2 Corinthians 12, 20-21 is not represented at all. Specifically, Snowden's text had five contexts in which he might have employed lest shall syntax, and Hunt's text had one. All eleven of Leacock's and Linning's lest sentences could have employed shall, because lest shall syntax is missing in 17 possible cases, it is possible that the pseudo-biblical authors were unaware of the rare biblical usage, only three times after 240 instances of lest. And this was also possible for Joseph Smith. Nonetheless, the Book of Mormon has 14 cases of the conjunction lest, followed immediately by sentences with the modal auxiliary verb shall, as in the following example. Mosiah 2.32 But, O my people, beware lest there shall arise contentions among you, and ye list to obey the evil spirit which was spoken of by my father Mosiah. Present tense ye list, conjoined to there shall arise, suggests the shall may be primarily a subjunctive mood marker. In the Book of Mormon variation, lest there shall arise, and ye null, list, has been found in the textual record after lest and should. These 14 cases represent an extraordinary amount of lest shall usage. It is equivalent to a rate of approximately 55 words per million, which is slightly more than 17 times the rate of the King James Bible. 
and Alan analysts such as Bowen would call this outsized use of lest shall in the Book of Mormon a biblical hypercorrection. As noted, however, there is no supporting pseudo-biblical usage. In this domain, Joseph Smith rather obviously exceeded the four pseudo-biblical texts in reproducing hardly noticeable archaic biblical syntax. The same set of circumstances is encountered in the Book of Mormon in many different linguistic domains, and raises the possibility that Book of Mormon authorship might have involved early modern English competence, implicit knowledge. The argument for Book of Mormon's less-shall usage not being a biblical hypercorrection, but rather representing early modern English competence, gains a measure of support from a passage in the Olive Tree Allegory, which displays triple variation in auxiliary selection after last. Jacob 5.65 And ye shall not clear away the bad thereof all at once, lest the roots thereof should be too strong for the graft, and the graft thereof shall perish and I, null, lose the trees of my vineyard. Here we read three clauses after the conjunction lest. The first one has the auxiliary should, the second one shall, and the third one has no auxiliary, shown by the null sign. Initially, without any knowledge of past grammatical possibilities, we might assign the auxiliary mixture in Jacob 5.65 to Joseph making a mistake. Yet there are rare textual precedents found in the early modern period to consider, as in this example. 1662, Abraham Wright, A Practical Commentary on the Pentateuch. Lest either Abraham should not do that for which he came, or shall want means of speedy thanksgiving for so gracious a disappointment. Here and below, the spelling of early English books online examples has been regularized. In this case, only a hyphen has been deleted from thanksgiving. The auxiliary variation of this 1662 example and Jacob 5.65 provide us with a clear syntactic match. Neither the King James Bible nor pseudo-biblical texts contain this variation. It slightly strengthens the position against biblical hypercorrection and for early modern English competence. Without further support, however, this should be regarded as a coincidence. As it turns out, however, there are dozens of coincidences in the earliest text of one kind or another, some of them edited out. These things taken together materially strengthen the position against biblical hypercorrection in this specific case and for the entire Book of Mormon text. Personal that, which, and who or whom. The cataloging of relative pronoun usage after human antecedents in the Book of Mormon has much to tell us about the issue of authorship. That is because the majority of such usage is generated subconsciously, this contrasts with the mostly conscious use of context-rich phrases and words, some of which are obviously biblical. Just as speakers and writers today rarely pay attention to whether they use that or who, whom, to refer back to human antecedents in phrases like those who were there or the people that heard those things, 400 years ago, speakers and writers would have paid little attention to whether they employed that, which, or who, whom the three options available in the early modern period, to refer back to human antecedents. They would have followed personal and dialectal preferences, almost always subconsciously. Personal that was the most common option coming out of late Middle English and throughout most of the 1500s and 1600s, and it has persisted to this day at close to a 10% usage rate. Over time, personal which, e.g. our father which art in heaven, became less and less common, and personal who took over from personal that as the dominant form. 
Personal which is the option that has become very rare, except in narrowly confined contexts. Syntax and the antecedent affect relative pronoun selection. Also, the antecedent cannot always be determined. Yet enough clear data exists to lead to the conclusion that the Book of Mormon usage is different from modern who-that usage, and from the usage patterns of the four pseudo-biblical writings considered in this study. Book of Mormon usage is also significantly different from the dominant form of early modern English represented in the King James Bible. Book of Mormon usage is not derivable from any of these sources, but is similar to less common early modern English usage. Details for the Book of Mormon in the King James Bible are as follows. The Book of Mormon's personal witch usage rate probably exceeds 50%. One sampling involving four different types of high-frequency antecedents, those they-them, he-him, man-men, and people, shows an interesting diversity in usage patterns and an overall personal witch usage rate of 52%. Personal that, 30.5%, and who-whom, 17.5% taken together, are used slightly less than half of the time after these antecedents in the earliest text. The King James Bible employs personal which only 12.5% of the time after these same antecedents. Personal that is dominant, 83.5%, with who whom occurring only 4% of the time. Only when the relative pronoun's antecedent is he him are these two scriptural texts correlated. Otherwise, their usage is uncorrelated or negatively correlated. Personal which was extensively but incompletely edited out of the Book of Mormon by Joseph Smith for the 1837 edition. It is more likely that this was a case of Joseph's attempting to grammatically change and partially modernize the text rather than attempting to achieve uh, original authorship aims. On the subject of personal which, Bowen recently wrote the following in his dissertation, quote, Smith modernized this feature aggressively in the second edition, and only a few instances of the older form remain. However, in the process of performing thorough text-critical work, Skousen has noted that 952 of 1,032 instances were changed in 1837, and only several more later. Consequently, calling the remaining instances of personal which a few gives the wrong picture. There aren't fewer than 10 remaining, the typical upper-bound meaning of a few, but actually almost 80. If we take a few to mean less than 10%, then it works. As we might expect, in changing so many instances of which to who, Joseph occasionally over-edited which to who, making mistakes. Three of the pseudo-biblical writings have examples of personal which, but are dominant in who or that. Leacock's text, six instances of personal which, Linning's text, two instances, multitudes slash captives which, and Hunt's text, one instance, quote, false prophets which come. No examples of personal which in Snowden's text were found in a recent search. All pseudo-biblical writings, but the earliest one, Leacock's, are strictly modern in their profile. Thus, three pseudo-biblical authors didn't break from the preferences they learned as native speakers and writers of late modern English. Recent counts yielded the following details. Here I exclude prepositional contexts. Leacock's text has 45 instances of personal that, 58%, 6 instances of personal which, 8%, and 26 instances of who whom, 34%. The relative order of use of these relative pronouns in descending frequency, that, who whom, which, makes this text a biblical modern hybrid. 
Snowden's text has about 20 instances of personal that, 10%, no instances of personal which, 0%, and about 180 instances of who whom, 90%. This text exhibits a strong preference for who whom over that. Linning's text has eight instances of personal that, 20%, two instances of personal which, 5%, and 31 instances of who whom, 75%. This text exhibits a strong preference for who whom over that. Hunt's text has 44 instances of personal that, 47%, one instance of personal which, 1%, and 49 instances of who whom, 52%. This text exhibits a slight preference for who whom over that. As a side note, Joseph Smith's 1832 history is strictly modern in its profile, since it contains 10 instances of the relative pronoun who whom, two instances of personal that, but none of personal which. This agrees generally with the contemporary textual record and independent linguistic research. Moreover, Bowen's 2016 dissertation provides supporting evidence from Joseph Smith's letters, see pages 167 and 171. This means, of course, that Book of Mormon usage is different from Joseph's own linguistic preferences. It is relevant and important to note that the short 1832 history has quite a few archaizing biblical features in it. Thus, if a desire for archaism on the part of Joseph Smith had been the driver of the heavy usage of personal witch in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon, we would expect some personal witch to have been employed in the history. The lack of it there weakens the position that heavy doses of personal witch in the Book of Mormon emanated from Joseph's attempt to be archaic and biblical. To recap, here's the breakdown of usage in the texts considered in this study. Table 1. Percentage of usage of relative pronouns with personal reference. King James Bible, that, 83.5. Which, 12.6. Who, whom, 3.9. Book of Mormon, that, 30.5. Which, 52.0. Who, whom, 17.5. American Chronicles, that, 58.4, which, 7.8, who whom, 33.8. The American Revolution, that, 10, which, 0, who whom, 90. Book of Napoleon, that, 19.5, which, 4.9, who whom, 75.6. The Late War, that, 46.8, which, 1.1, who whom, 52.1. As mentioned, the Book of Mormon is uncorrelated with the King James Bible in this domain. The Book of Mormon is negatively correlated with all four pseudo-biblical writings, usually strongly negatively correlated and especially with Gilbert J. Hunt's The Late War, the text compared most often to the Book of Mormon. Based on the above figures, the Late War correlates with the King James Bible at 0.32 and with the Book of Mormon at negative 0.96. Two of the pseudo-biblical writings are positively correlated with the King James Bible. The oldest one, Leacock's text, correlates most strongly at 0 0.8. Again, an analyst might claim the Book of Mormon overuses personal witch as a biblical hypercorrection. I will briefly note two things here. First, heavy use of personal that is the most likely biblical hypercorrection. Second, it is unlikely Joseph Smith could have successfully dictated against subconscious relative pronoun tendencies approximately a thousand times. The four pseudo-biblical texts support this view. The more likely divergence from Joseph's own linguistic tendencies would have been something like Leacock's distribution, which is heavy and personal that. 
familiarity with biblical usage and internalizing it to a degree might have led to such a result. Paraphrastic did. In this section, paraphrastic did means the use of the auxiliary did or didst in declarative contexts with an infinitive and without not, as in they did go forth without full or contrastive emphasis on the auxiliary. To be clear, I have counted phraseology such as neither did they go, headed by a negative conjunction as an instance of paraphrastic did, since neither went they was possible in earlier English, and the simple non-paraphrastic option was available to pseudo-biblical authors. Phraseology such as neither did they go could be considered a type of negative usage along with did not, but I have chosen to follow Elagard 1953 in the matter. The two main syntactic types of non-emphatic paraphrastic did are differentiated by whether did and the infinitive are adjacent. It is important to note that non-emphatic non-adjacency has persisted in English in limited fashion, while non-emphatic adjacency has not. Thus, the two syntactic types follow distinct paths, diachronically speaking. Texts with very high levels of adjacency are uncommon and mainly confined to the first half of the early modern period, specifically from the 1530s to the 1560s. Other than a recent dissertation by Bowen referred to above, I have not read any studies by linguists of the Book of Mormon's paraphrastic did. Bowen's treatment is only preliminary, and besides some brief comments, see page 156, he doesn't treat present tense and past tense usage separately. My own analysis of paraphrastic did in the Book of Mormon, following Alvar Elagard's approach in his wide-ranging work on the subject, has shown that the Book of Mormon's past-tense syntax matches some 16th-century texts in their rate and syntactic distribution. There also appears to be some correlation with individual verb tendencies of the early modern era, as I discovered by performing many nearly comprehensive searches of the Early English Book Online Phase 1 database. Thus, the Book of Mormon contains an early and robust form of paraphrastic did, something chiefly found in the middle of the 16th century. A book written by the Cambridge theologian and mathematician Isaac Barlow, A Treatise on the Pope's Supremacy, 1683, first published posthumously in 1680, may be the latest one whose past tense rate exceeds that of the Book of Mormon. Elgard estimated that the King James Bible's overall paraphrastic do rate both present tense and past tense, was 1.3%. In 2014, I estimated that its past tense paraphrastic did and didst rate was 1.7%. This rate, however, is conspicuously skewed by more than 95% usage of did eat instead of ate, and an outsized rate of paraphrastic didst, more than 10 times the overall paraphrastic did rate, and about 20 times the paraphrastic did rate when did eat is excluded. Notably, there is no significant skewing present in the Book of Mormon with either did eat or any other verb, and not even with paraphrastic didst, since neither type of paraphrastic did makes up a significant percentage of examples. Joseph Smith's own language, as determined from an analysis of his 1832 manuscript history, lacked paraphrastic did. Bowen's dissertation provides supporting evidence from Joseph's letters. See Table 37 on page 167. This agrees with independent linguistic assessments. None of the four pseudo-biblical writers produced anything like what the Book of Mormon has in this regard. One text barely employed paraphrastic did. 
the two pseudo-biblical texts with the most examples, Snowden's and Hunt's, are almost completely modern in their implementation of the paraphrasis, especially in their wholly modern syntactic distribution of did and the infinitive non-adjacent. Specifically, Snowden and Hunt almost always inverted the order of the grammatical subject and the auxiliary. Their syntactic distribution is negatively correlated with that of the Book of Mormon, about negative 0.4 and negative 0.6 respectively. The Book of Mormon is much closer to the King James Bible in syntactic distribution of the did, auxiliary, and the infinitive. The Book of Mormon has more than 90% did infinitive adjacency, while current estimates indicate that the King James Bible has close to 72.5% did infinitive adjacency. The inescapable difference between the two scriptural texts is that they are very far apart in overall textual rates of paraphrastic did. And their individual verb use with did is also substantially different, correlating at only 0.3. Three of the four pseudo-biblical texts have very little did infinitive adjacency. The oldest one, Leacock's text, has ten cases of adjacency, but eight of these occur in one stretch of about 500 words in the context of proving, feeling, and concluding. All but one of these eight instances appear to be emphatic. The first two adjacency examples are did eat, biblical. Another candidate of did infinitive adjacency is exceptional since it is a case of did resumption at the end of a complex intervening adverbial used in a proclamation. The lengthy adverbial phrase is bracketed below. 1774 to 1775, John Leacock, American Chronicles, 428d. The usurper did, bracket, most daringly, wantonly, abominably, wickedly, atrociously, and devilishly, and without my knowledge, allowance, approbation, instruction, or consent, first had and obtained, and without my name and the imperial signet of the commonwealth affixed thereunto, end bracket, did presume and ipso facto issue forth and publish a most diabolical and treasonable proclamation. End of the citation. I have counted this as an intervening adverbial example. Ultimately, Leacock's text doesn't have much interesting paraphrastic did use in it. It is infrequent and sporadically concentrated. There are 11 examples of paraphrastic did found in Snowden's book. The only time he used the paraphrasis with adjacency was when he wrote, Thou didst take, thereby avoiding simple past tense, tookst, a verb form that is found five times in the 1611 King James Bible. The syntactic distribution of paraphrastic did in Snowden's text is 9% adjacency, 91% inversion, and 0% intervening adverbial. Linning's text has only one example of paraphrastic did, with inversion of did and the subject. Quote, Nor did they seek further to molest the Albions. 63. As far as archaic paraphrastic did is concerned, there is nothing of note in this pseudo-biblical text. The sole use of did infinitive adjacency in Hunt's text is the king did put and give. The syntactic distribution of paraphrastic did in Hunt's text is 4.8% adjacency, 95.2% inversion, and 14.3% intervening adverbial. In three cases, there is both inversion and an intervening adverbial phrase. The following table summarizes these paraphrastic did findings. Table 2. Estimates of paraphrastic did adjacency rates and shares of non-adjacency. 
The first column is the text. The second column is past tense rate of did infinitive adjacency. The third column is share of did infinitive non-adjacency. King James Bible, 1.2, greater than 25%. Book of Mormon, 24, less than 10%. American Chronicles, 0.8, greater than 50%. Book of Napoleon, 0, one example. Snowden's and Hunt's texts, 0.1, greater than 90%. In summary, the text of the Book of Mormon does not follow scriptural-style authors, the King James Bible, or Joseph's own language in its past tense usage. Book of Mormon paraphrastic did usage is well distributed in past tense passages throughout the text, although usage rates do ebb and flow, as is the case in some high-rate 16th century early English book online texts. No single verb dominates paraphrastic did in the Book of Mormon, and paraphrastic didst makes up a small part of the overall usage. In contrast, both did eat and paraphrastic didst in the, in the King James Bible are noticeably out of line with the rest of its paraphrastic did usage. If these two types are eliminated from rate calculations, then the biblical rate of did infinitive adjacency drops significantly to less than 1%. On the other hand, neither eliminating did go from the Book of Mormon rate calculations, the most frequently occurring paraphrases, nor eliminating paraphrastic didst causes its did infinitive adjacency rate to change appreciably. More part usage. In the Book of Mormon, the phrase the more part and close variance is used at nearly 40 times the rate of the King James Bible. It is accurate to state that the Book of Mormon follows the most common early modern English formulation of this phrase. Coverdale's usage in Acts 27.12, the more part of them, and not King James style, the more part, since a prepositional phrase always follows part or parts 26 times. In addition, the more part of X in the Book of Mormon cannot be said to stem from pseudo-biblical writings, since they have no examples of the obsolete phrase, and it matches several historical works from the late 15th century and the 16th century, both in usage frequency and in the various forms of the era, some rare. One text that stands out is a 1550 translation of Thucydides by Thomas Nichols. It employs more part phraseology at nearly double the rate of the Book of Mormon. King James Bible. Two instances. Comment. Never post-modified by a prepositional phrase. Book of Mormon. 26 and three rare instances. Comment. Always post-modified by a prepositional phrase. Pseudo-biblical texts. Zero instances. Comment. No examples. The two exceptional forms of this phrase type, with an indefinite article, a more part of it, Helaman 6.32, and with plural, parts, the more parts of his gospel, Helaman 6.21, the more parts of the Nephites, 4th Nephi 1.27, provide support for the view that more part phraseology in the Book of Mormon is early modern English usage, and not a conscious revival by Joseph Smith of earlier language, which is what we find in some of Robert Louis Stevenson's novels and elsewhere. Those who used the archaic phraseology, the more part, in the second half of the 19th century and later, were literate authors who had read widely from older writings. Joseph certainly did not fit their educational or experiential profile in the 1820s. Based on what is currently known, linguistic revivalists of the usage, such as the Oxford historian Edward Freeman, the medievalist William Morris, and the novelist Stevenson, did not employ a more part 
or the more parts with this particular meaning. Because the phrase, the more part, was in obsolescence and not productively used in the late 19th century, they naturally did not employ rare, alternate forms, which they may not have encountered, but merely reproduced the most frequent and more easily known form. The Book of Mormon's more part usage is quite unexpected from a perspective of Joseph generating it from his own biblically styled language. One must go back in time 250 years to Hollingshead's Chronicles, 1577, to encounter a text with the level of usage found in the Book of Mormon. As a result, its more part profile fits the occasional use found in the first half of the early modern period and no other time. Intimate knowledge of neither the King James Bible nor pseudo-biblical texts would have led to the distinctive and relatively heavy use of the more part found in the Book of Mormon. Had been spake. There are twelve instances of the pluperfect had spake in the Book of Mormon, but none in the King James Bible or in pseudo-biblical writings. There are also forty-eight instances of had spoken found in the earliest text. For both these counts I exclude passive constructions involving had been. The more common form of the past participle occurs eighty percent of the time in the pluperfect tense in the Book of Mormon. The less common form, had spake, occurs twenty percent of the time. I found, by carefully searching early English books online and Google Books, and rejecting many false positives, that the only time had spake wasn't rare in the textual record was the latter half of the early modern era. Even then, however, this particular leveled past participle usage was quite uncommon. The other minority variant of the past participle used in pluperfect had spoke is found much more often than had spake in earlier English. Had spoke is typical Shakespearean English, but it is not found in either the Book of Mormon or the King James Bible. After the year 1700, we hardly encounter original instances of had spake in the textual record. Because of an explosion of publishing, there are cases of it, but very few. One example is found in an 1812 book published in Troy, New York. As a result, we must accept that there is a slight possibility the Book of Mormon's had spake could have come from Joseph Smith's dialect. As a result, we must rely on ancillary evidence to determine whether the Book of Mormon's twelve occurrences of had spake are best viewed as examples of early modern English or modern dialectal usage. Two items of related past participle evidence lend support for viewing the twelve instances of had spake in the Book of Mormon as an archaism rather than examples of rare modern usage. First, we note that had been spake occurs once at Alma 6.8. As of now, the two-word the two passive phrase, bin spake, has been found only three times in the textual record. Quote, this had not been spake of at all, 1646. And, quote, the spiritual afflictions have been spake of much, 1659. And, quote, one had been spake too about it, 1699. The bigram bin spake has not yet been found after the year 1699 suggesting that any late modern example that might turn up in the future will be quite rare. Second, we know that the distinctive five-word phrase, of which hath been spoken, meaning previously mentioned or aforementioned, occurs twice in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. Variants with the expletive subject it are known, that is, of the form of which it hath been spoken. So the syntax is probably singular. 
Currently, there are approximately 30 known instances of this phraseology in the early English Books Online database of approximately 60,000 texts, but none attested after the year 1685. These two related items support the Book of Mormon's use of had spake as an archaism. In summary, it is unlikely that we would read had been spake and of which hath been spoken a total of 15 times in the canonical Book of Mormon text if Joseph Smith had been responsible for its wording from either his own language or an attempt to follow King James style. We encounter this same set of circumstances repeatedly in the Book of Mormon, lexis and syntax that Joseph probably would not have produced by following 1820s American dialect, pseudo-biblical writings, or King James language. The TH plural. Lengthy biblical passages in the earliest texts contain instances of what may be accurately called early modern English modifications that are not biblical in nature. These include cases of TH inflection used with persons other than the third person singular, such as them that contendeth, 2 Nephi 6.17, they dieth, 2 Nephi 7.2, and I have put and hath covered, 2 Nephi 8.16. Even though TH inflection could occur historically in all person number contexts, linguists have come to call the inflection when used with subjects that aren't third person singular the th plural since that was the primary usage in the past it was a less common option in the early modern period emanating from southern varieties of middle english the th plural can be found throughout the early modern era but was used at a diminishing rate over time by the 18th century, only vestigial use of th plural remained, usually with the auxiliary verbs doth and hath. The two earliest pseudo-biblical writings examined in this study have examples of the th plural, with the earliest one containing five of them. 1774 to 1775, John Leacock, American Chronicles, 15, 6.47. Their ships that goeth upon the waters. These letters in mine hand witnesseth sore against them. These are the extortioners that causeth the kingdom to pass away. The pious ashes of them that sleepeth. For blessed are they that shaketh hands with them in peace. Leacock employed a somewhat limited variety of the TH plural. Four times after the relative pronoun that, and once in a possible case of proximity agreement with singular hand. Snowden's text has two examples. 1793, Richard Snowden, The American Revolution. 1814, 3717. Nevertheless, there were some who maintained their integrity and were as the strong oaks in the forest of Columbia that feareth not the windy storm and tempest. For vice and luxury weaken the people, and the rulers causeth them to err. In verse 1814, the agreement controller is Oaks. In this case, there is also the possibility of proximity agreement with the nearest singular nominal, Columbia. In verse 3717, the TH plural occurs after a plural noun phrase subject, something that was very rare by the end of the 18th century. Notice that there is also nearby variation, since weakeneth wasn't used after the complex subject, vice and luxury. Linning's text has two possible examples, but the subjects are probably singular. 1809, Matthew Linning, Book of Napoleon, 611 and 127. By means of your wisdom and counsel, which reacheth from the earth beneath unto the heavens above. So in like manner doth the prince and his people. 
The first example has two conjoined abstract nouns. Multiple nouns of this kind often resolve to a singular noun phrase in English, even up to the present day. This example is similar to the language of 1 Kings 10.7. Thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I heard. Where the verb translated as exceedeth precedes the abstract nouns in the Hebrew and is singular in form, although many later translations into English do use a plural verb. In the second case, the conjoined agreement controllers follow the verb, and the closest one to the verb is singular. It may be helpful to consider that for many English speakers, if not most, similar phraseology would be unobjectionable, e.g., so does the queen and her people. At first blush, Leacock's and Snowden's TH plural usage suggests that Joseph Smith might have been able to produce the archaic TH plural of the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. I will mention here a few things to consider on this point. First and foremost, there is no TH plural usage immediately following pronouns in these pseudo-biblical texts, such as they dieth, or we layeth, or ye doth. The Book of Mormon has 13 of these, setting it apart from what we find in the King James Bible and the four pseudo-biblical texts. Second, there are close to 150 instances of the TH plural in the Book of Mormon. Despite its relatively late date of composition, the earliest text of the Book of Mormon employs the TH plural at nearly twice the rate of Leacock's text, and about 20 times the rate of Snowden's text. Third, overall usage patterns in the earliest text match early modern English tendencies non-superficially. The TH plural is employed with all the variety of earlier English, after noun phrases and pronouns, after relative pronouns and in conjoined predicates, with different kinds of nearby variation, and with first-person and second-person subjects. Also, there is little of its usage after pronouns and heavier rates of use after relative pronouns, as in early English book online phase one texts. None of the pseudo-biblical texts have enough data to be sure of this. They have no usage after pronouns or first and second person subjects, and none in conjoined predicates. The fact that there is no usage of the type they dieth, or we layeth, or ye doth, or I have and hath, as we encounter in the Book of Mormon, means that these texts are somewhat limited in their usage of the TH plural. Fourth, taking the two linning examples shown above, to be singular means that the 19th century pseudo-biblical writings do not have examples of the TH plural. These pseudo-biblical authors were further removed from the end of the 17th century when the TH plural was becoming rare. Consequently, they were less likely to be aware of the historical usage of this particular verb morphology. Therefore, it isn't surprising that they didn't employ the TH plural, and it also makes the robust usage of the Book of Mormon exceptional. The following Book of Mormon passage contains two examples of the TH plural, as well as nearby variation. Mosiah 3.18 But men drinketh damnation to their own souls, except they humble themselves and become as little children, and believeth that salvation was and is and is to come in and through the atoning blood of Christ, the Lord Omnipotent. In this verse, TH inflection is employed after the noun men, similar to Snowden's rulers causeth and also in the conjoined predicate. They humble themselves and become, and believeth, is an example of an optional early modern English they constraint, where the th inflection is used only in a predicate linked to they, but not immediately after they. It should be noted, however, that in both early modern English and in the Book of Mormon, counterexamples are found, that is, where the th inflection is found immediately after they, but not in the conjoined predicate. 
The reason linguists write of a they constraint is that in early modern English and later, the pronoun they used next to a verb in th was much less common than verbs in th used in conjoined predicates and in relative clauses. Thorough analysis of the earliest text th plural patterns demonstrates that the Book of Mormon's systematic usage of this domain is attested, archaic, and well-formed from the point of view of early modern English. This is one way the present tense verbal system of the Book of Mormon is archaic and extra-biblical. This also points to the occasional third-person singular usage of S forms in the earliest text being typical early modern English variation rather than occasional slip-ups by Joseph Smith. Verbal complementation patterns after five verbs. This next section mainly focuses on whether the verbal complement following five high-frequency verbs cause, command, desire, make, and suffer is infinitival or finite. Also of concern is whether finite cases are simple or complex, and whether a modal auxiliary verb occurs in the complement. As an example, consider the following Book of Mormon excerpt, 3 Nephi 2.3, causing them, object 1, that they should do great wickedness in the land, object 2. This is ditransitive or dual object syntax. The verb cause takes two objects. The first object in the above example is a pronoun, and the second object is a clause. A sentence follows the conjunction, or complementizer, that. In this case, the following sentence is, They should do great wickedness in the land. And it contains the modal auxiliary verb should. Modal auxiliary usage is a sign of archaism, especially shall, and the Book of Mormon has plenty of it. The above syntax can also be called a complex finite construction since an extra constituent occurs before the that clause. Complex finite syntax is a strong marker of archaism. The one object equivalent of the above 3 Nephi 2.3 language would have no them, causing null, that they should do great wickedness in the land. Such simple finite syntax is by far the most common type of finite complementation found in the textual record of English. The infinitival equivalent of this is 3 Nephi 2.3. Language would have to instead of that they should, causing them to do great wickedness in the land. Infinitival complementation is the most common type in English after many verbs, including the five studied here. The Book of Mormon has more than a hundred examples of all three types, the infinitival, the simple finite, and the complex finite. There are different ways to count complementation each with their own advantages and disadvantages. For the following analyses, I have adopted a conservative approach and have not counted any conjoined cases unless there is a switch in complementation type. There are arguably errors in the counts I have made, and perhaps a few examples that have been overlooked, but none that should affect the results materially. In general, the Book of Mormon has much more finite complementation than the King James Bible and pseudo-biblical texts. The differences are quite large with four of the five verbs, none more so than in the case of cause. Complementation patterns following the verb cause. Finite complementation rates, finite clauses governed by the verb cause. King James Bible, 1% out of 303 instances. Book of Mormon, 57.6% out of 236 instances. Pseudo-biblical texts, 0% out of 37 instances total. Instances of archaic ditransitive syntax. King James Bible, 0. Book of Mormon, 12. 
pseudo-biblical texts, zero. These two short lists show that verbal complementation following the verb cause in the Book of Mormon is utterly different from that of the King James Bible and the pseudo-biblical texts. As indicated, the above figures are based on an examination of hundreds of examples in both the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible, and 37 examples total in the four pseudo-biblical texts. Chi-square tests run on simple finite, complex finite, and infinitival counts, comparing the Book of Mormon with the King James Bible or with the four pseudo-biblical texts, are statistically significant to a very high degree. This is true for the verbal complementation patterns after four of the verbs. This means that the syntactic differences are almost certainly not accidental. In the case at hand, it means either that Joseph deliberately produced these syntactic structures, since the patterns were vastly different from his own modern patterns, or that they were part of the English language translation transmitted to him. As indicated, pseudo-biblical texts only employ infinitival complementation after the verb cause. The chi-square test indicates consistency with biblical influence, in this case. For Leacock's text, I have counted 14 infinitival instances of extended cause syntax. For Snowden's text, 11. For Linning's text, 4. And for Hunt's text, I have counted 8. This consistent pattern matches modern tendencies and is similar to what we see in authors contemporary with the initial publication of the Book of Mormon, such as Walter Scott and James Fenimore Cooper. I made two small corpora of about five million words each from dozens of texts written by these prolific authors. After isolating hundreds of examples in past tense contexts, I found that these two authors employed only infinitival cause syntax. The King James Bible is 99% infinitival in its cause complementation. It has only three instances of finite cause syntax. In contrast, the Book of Mormon has 136 cases of finite cause syntax. One might assert that the Book of Mormon usage was a vast expansion based on these three biblical examples. But what about the other extra-biblical archaic cause syntax present in the earliest text? Most obviously, how does one account for the twelve dual-object causative constructions exemplified by 3 Nephi 2.3 above? How are the biblical hypercorrections when there is no such syntax in the King James Bible? These are the kinds of questions a thorough analyst must confront. The level of finite cause syntax in the Book of Mormon is very high, much higher than early modern English averages, which probably varied between 3 and 1% in a roughly descending trend over time. Of course, outliers do exist in the print record. For example, one mid-16th century text I inspected employed finite cause syntax about 13% of the time, 6 out of 45 instances. Thus, a textual rate significantly higher than the currently estimated upper bound average of 3% is attested. Overall, cause syntax with verbal complements was implemented in the Book of Mormon in a variety of contexts in a principled manner, pointing to tacit knowledge of various tendencies of earlier modern English. First, the Book of Mormon has 12 instances of dual object complementation, as in the above example from 3 Nephi 2.3. This uncommon archaic construction can be found a few dozen times in early English books online, but it may have been obsolete by the late modern period. The high number of archaic ditransitive structures decisively marks Book of Mormon cause syntax as early modern English in character. Second, the Book of Mormon exhibits extra-biblical auxiliary usage in the embedded clause with shall 13 times and may 3 times. 
Although this usage can still be found in the late modern period, its rate of use by then was low compared to the rate of the earlier period. Third, the earliest text contains one case of mixed complementation, also characteristic of the earlier period. Mormon 840. Why do ye cause that widows should mourn before the Lord, and also orphans too mourn before the Lord, and also the blood of their fathers and their husbands too cry unto the Lord from the ground for vengeance upon your heads? 1643, William Prynne, the Popish royal favorite. He caused the image of the cross to be redressed, and that men should not foul it under their feet. The following nominal example has the same order of complementation as Mormon 8 and 40. 1651, Jeremiah Burroughs died 1646, an exposition on the prophecy of Hosea. For the act was so foul that it could not but make all the people, as Jacob thought, to abhor him, and would be a cause that they should all rise against him, and utterly too cut him off. Fourth, the earliest text optionally leaves out that in finite complementation with the verb cause, but only in conjoined syntax, as in the following example, where null indicates a missing that. Third Nephi 3.14 He caused that fortifications should be built round about them, and, null, the strength thereof should be exceeding great. These constructions can be explained by possible analogous usage after many other verbs, but the that ellipsis is constrained in the Book of Mormon causatives, that is, restricted to this particular syntactic context. The that ellipsis is similar to the syntax of the following early modern English examples, which have mixed complementation. 1566, William Adlington, translator, Apulae's Metamorphoses. When the people was desirous to see me play qualities, they caused the gates to be shut and null, such as entered in should pay money. 1629, Nathaniel Brent, translator. Paolo Sarpi's The History of the Council of Trent. He caused a bull to be made, and, in case he should die before his return, null, the election should be made in Rome by the College of Cardinals. The following nominal example has more obvious that ellipsis. 1678. Thomas Long, Mr. Hale's Treatise of Schism, Examined and Censured. It was none of the old cause that... The people should have liberty, and, null, the magistrate should have no power. To finish this subsection on extended cause syntax, we consider the following rare language, which was removed after the 1830 edition, page 513, line 10. 3 Nephi 29.4 If ye shall spurn at his doings, he will cause it that it shall soon overtake you. The first it was removed for the 1837 edition, although not marked in the printer's manuscript for deletion by Joseph Smith. The reader may consult Skousen's analysis of textual variants in the Book of Mormon for a good discussion, as well as Skousen Grammatical Variation 308 and 1050. The above excerpt is a poor candidate for biblical hypercorrection for the following three reasons, arranged according to currently perceived significance. 
The pronomial it redundancy isn't implemented in other similar dependent complementation in the biblical text, where an infinitival to could have replaced the that it shall part, generally that it auxiliary. The verb cause never governs a dual object complement in the biblical text. The above construction was rare in the early modern period and is currently unattested in the late modern period, suggesting 18th century obsolescence. The auxiliary shall is not used in the complement after the verb cause in the biblical text. Here are the four examples of the cause it that it phraseology of 3 Nephi 29.4 that I have found thus far. 1616, translation of La Maison Moustique. To prevent the decay of beer and to cause it that it may continue and stand good a long time. 1626, Henry Burton, a plea to an appeal traversed dialogue-wise. For how is it mere mercy if any good in us foreseen first caused it that it should offer a savior to us? The larger context does not clearly point to the comma indicating a, a purposive or resultative reading. 1634, Thomas Johnson, translator, Ambrose Perret's works. Which causeth it that it cannot be discussed and resolved by reason of the weakness of the part and defect of heat. 1697, commonly misattributed to John Locke, a commonplace book to the Holy Bible. When this epistle is read among you, cause it that it be read also in the church of Laodicea. Earlier and later editions don't have the ditransitive syntax. This is a paraphrase of Colossians 4.16, which reads as follows. And when this epistle is read amongst you, cause, null, that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans. From all the causative structures I've been able to study and compare in early English books online, Google Books, the scriptural texts, and elsewhere, neither the King James Bible nor the four pseudo-biblical writings appear to have been adequate models for the archaic implementation of cause syntax found in the earliest text of the Book of Mormon. Complementation patterns following the verb command. In the case of the verb command, both the King James Bible and the four pseudo-biblical texts have appreciable levels of finite complementation, but nothing that approaches Book of Mormon levels. Finite complementation rates. Finite clauses governed by the verb command. King James Bible, 25.5% out of 167 instances. Book of Mormon, 77.2% out of 165 instances. Pseudo-biblical texts, 25.7% out of 35 instances total. Instances of archaic ditransitive syntax. King James Bible, 19. Book of Mormon, 99. Pseudo-Biblical Texts 1. Snowden The Book of Mormon is again marked differently from both the King James Bible and the four pseudo-biblical texts in terms of extended command syntax, in the two ways shown above and in other ways. The four pseudo-biblical writings analyzed for this study do not employ dual-object syntax except in one complex case involving mixed complementation. Their finite complementation rates are similar to the King James Bible's. We must go back almost 350 years to find a text that has close to the number of instances of dual-object command syntax that the Book of Mormon has. William Caxton's translation of The Golden Legend, 1483, has about 65 instances of dual-object command syntax in fully active constructions. The Book of Mormon has about 75 instances of dual-object command syntax in fully active constructions.
These texts have many additional examples in passive structures. The biblical hypercorrection view takes the Book of Mormon's heavy finite usage, both simple and complex, to be an overexpansion of the King James Bible's finite syntax. Yet there are other considerations a thorough analyst must take into account. First, the Book of Mormon employs the auxiliary shall in the complement clause seven times. This is absent from the King James Bible and from pseudo-biblical writings, and is either early modern usage or uncommon late modern literary usage. Second, the tendency of Hollingshead's Chronicles, 1577, to not use a modal auxiliary verb after second-person embedded subjects is present in the Book of Mormon, as is an infinitival tendency when, verb, when the verb command is in the passive voice. Third, the Book of Mormon is almost completely consistent in employing finite complementation in several specific contexts with complex embedded syntax, with embedded negation, reflexives, passives, and multiple verb phrases. In other words, heavy verbal complements are usually finite. Fourth, should, not shall, is used after non-past passive command verbs, e.g., we are commanded that we should, in line with early modern English tendencies. This conclusion is based on extensive searches of the early English books online phase one database. Fifth, there is an unlikely match with the nearby shall, should variation employed by the following prolific translator. 1608, Edward Grimston, translator, Jean-François Le Petit, A General History of the Netherlands. The said magistrates therefore command that every man shall govern himself, and that everyone should behave himself peaceably without upbraiding or crossing one another. Textual analysis reveals that the presence of the reflexive pronouns in this example made the choice of finite complementation more likely for the translator Grimston. For example, the King James Bible employs finite complementation at a significantly higher rate with embedded reflexives. Alma 61.13 But behold, he doth not command us that we shall subject ourselves to our enemies, but that we should put our trust in him and he will deliver us. Alma 61.13 combines several early modern English possibilities, finite complementation with a reflexive verb, a dual object construction, and a switch in modal auxiliary marking from shall to should. It seems unlikely that Joseph would have produced such a mix of archaic syntax. In conclusion, had Joseph followed the usage of pseudo-biblical writings or the King James Bible to formulate the Book of Mormon's extended command syntax, either consciously or subconsciously, we would expect few instances of the archaic ditransitive construction, not 99 of them. In addition, complementation would have been mostly infinitival, similar to what is found in the pseudo-biblical texts. All this reduces the likelihood that Joseph was responsible for formulating the wording of the text in this case. Complementation patterns following the verb desire. For this subsection, I've examined contexts in which the subject of the verb desire and the subject of its complement are distinct. This keeps the analysis in line with the syntactic structures involving the verb's cause and command in the active voice. Finite complementation rates. Finite clauses governed by the verb desire. King James Bible, 66.7% out of 18 instances. Book of Mormon, 93.1% out of 58 instances. Pseudo-biblical texts, 50% out of two instances total. Instances of archaic ditransitive syntax. King James Bible, 9. Book of Mormon, 16. Pseudo-biblical texts, 0.
finite complementation in the Book of Mormon in this domain exceeds what is found in the King James Bible, both in numbers and in rate. 58 instances versus 18 instances, 93% versus 67% finite. But against what we see in extended cause and command syntax, an object occurs before a that clause at a lower rate in the Book of Mormon than it does in the King James Bible, 30% of the time versus 75% of the time. In other words, ditransitive desire syntax is the most common type in the King James Bible, but not in the Book of Mormon, which often employs a simple finite structure. Furthermore, while the biblical text strongly prefers the auxiliary would, the Book of Mormon prefers the auxiliary should, the least common of the three principal modal auxiliaries used after the verb desire in the earlier print record of English, shown by extensive searches of the early English books online phase one database. In the four pseudo-biblical texts examined for this study, there are only two instances of desire used with verbal complementation. One is finite, the other infinitival. 1809, Matthew Linning, Book of Napoleon, 18.9. And thine angel yet again desired me to turn mine eyes the way toward the north. 1793, Richard Snowden, The American Revolution, 33.14. Now he had desired that the usual ceremonies of the dead should be omitted. The Book of Mormon employs a wider range of auxiliaries than the King James Bible does, including may and might, as well as non-past shall. Early English Books Online shows that shall auxiliary usage after the verb desire was uncommon in early modern English. In addition, the Book of Mormon also matches earlier English by employing several objects in of constructions and two instances of that ellipsis in contextually favored environments in a conjoined clause and after a wh phrase. The wide array of archaic finite syntax after the verb desire found in the Book of Mormon clearly could not have been derived from pseudo-biblical writings, since they only have two examples total. Rather, the Book of Mormon is the consummate example of archaic possibilities in this domain. The closest match between the scriptural text occurs in the case of infinitival complementation. In both texts, the infinitival option is employed with verbs whose argument structure is simple, usually intransitive. But the Book of Mormon is stricter in this regard. Complementation patterns following the verb make. Finite complementation rates. Finite clauses governed by the verb make. King James Bible, 0.3% out of 291 instances. Book of Mormon, 55.6% out of 9 instances. Pseudo-biblical texts, 0% out of 11 instances total. Instances of archaic ditransitive syntax. King James Bible, 1. Book of Mormon, 4. Pseudo-biblical texts, 0. One apparent difference between the scriptural texts resides in the frequency of verbal complementation after the verb make. The Book of Mormon has far fewer examples of this syntax than the King James Bible. The rate of usage of this syntactic structure in the biblical text is about ten times higher. The Book of Mormon prefers to express the notion with the verb cause. The Book of Mormon is close to 56% finite in its verbal complementation after the verb make. In contrast, the King James Bible is nearly 100% infinitival, and pseudo-biblical writings are 100% infinitival. Specifically, Leacock employed seven infinitival instances, Snowden three, Linning one, and Hunt zero. 
Clearly, syntactic patterns involving the verb make and verbal complements in the Book of Mormon are distinct from both King James and pseudo-biblical patterns. The one biblical example of finite complementation was apparently too obscure for pseudo-biblical writers to notice or to prompt them to adopt language mirroring this characteristically archaic usage. This particular case stems from Tyndall's earlier phraseology. 2 Peter 1.8 They make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 15.34 William Tyndall The New Testament They will make you that ye neither shall be idle nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If one wished to sound archaic, this would be an ideal structure to emulate. Yet, the pseudo-biblical texts do not have anything that comes close to it. In contrast, the Book of Mormon employed this type of syntax several times, with different auxiliaries, both with and without a noun phrase object after the verb make. In this way, it once again surpassed pseudo-biblical writings in archaic usage. And in the case of the verb make, the Book of Mormon also exceeded the King James Bible in archaic usage, implementing the less common finite construction at 15 times the rate of the biblical text, and employing three specific structures not found in the biblical text. Embedded auxiliary usage in the Book of Mormon is varied after the verb make, may, could, shall, and no auxiliary, and the match in this regard with broader early modern English is solid. As one example, the simple finite syntax of 1 Nephi 17.12 will make that they food shall become sweet, structurally make that subject shall infinitive, matches earlier English usage, including one translation of an Ezekiel passage by Tyndall. Finally, there is a striking match between the curious language of Ether 12.24 and that found in a 1675 example with the verb cause. Ether 12.24 for thou madest him that the things which he wrote were mighty even as thou art unto the overpowering of man to read them. 1675, John Rowe, The Saint's Temptations. It was Christ's prayer for Peter that caused him that his faith did not fail. In both cases, ditransitive causative constructions, the first object of the causative verb him and the subject of the complement clause are distinct but the embedded subject contains a pronoun, he or his, that refers to the preceding object, shown by the index I. Complementation patterns following the verb suffer. Finite complementation rates. Finite clauses governed by the verb suffer. King James Bible, 4.6% out of 65 instances. Book of Mormon, 62.6% out of 99 instances. Pseudo-biblical texts, 6.9% out of 29 instances. Instances of archaic ditransitive syntax, King James Bible 2, Book of Mormon 15, Pseudo-Biblical Texts 2, Leacock and Snowden. The Book of Mormon is the text that exhibits a comprehensive match with much of early modern English after the verb suffer. It easily surpasses the four pseudo-biblical texts in the use of a variety of syntactic structures found in earlier English with the archaic verb suffer. Though King James translators knew of this usage, they employed very little of it. The Book of Mormon employs finite complementation after the verb suffer nearly 63% of the time. Dual object constructions occur 15 times in the text after the verb suffer, five times with should, four times with shall, twice with may, and four times with no auxiliary. This is an exceptional level of archaic usage. 
In contrast, the four pseudo-biblical texts contain 29 instances total of the archaic verb suffer, used with verbal complements. Their combined infinitival rate is 93%. The King James Bible's infinitival rate is close to this at 95.4%. The Book of Mormon's infinitival rate of 37.4% is clearly very much lower than either of these. Early modern English employed infinitival complication exclusively, or nearly so, with reflexive objects, e.g., Christ suffered himself to be taken. The Book of Mormon is sensitive to this tendency, employing infinitival complementation in such texts 12 out of 14 times, strongly against its typical usage. This makes it difficult to argue that finite complementation in the Book of Mormon was employed in an unprincipled fashion without regard for tendencies of earlier English. Instead, we find that finite suffer syntax wasn't employed indiscriminately in the Book of Mormon text. The best fit between the Book of Mormon and the textual record of English in this domain is the 16th century. My current conclusion is that neither the King James Bible nor pseudo-biblical writings could have served as an adequate template for the wide variety of syntactic forms found in the Book of Mormon after the archaic verb suffer. A comparison of verbal complementation after five verbs. Now that we've considered the verbal complementation of five high-frequency verbs, cause, command, desire, make, and suffer, we can make a side-by-side -side comparison of the patterns found in the Book of Mormon, the King James Bible, and the four pseudo-biblical writings. Table 3. Finite complementation rates, object clauses governed by the verb. The table columns are the verb, the King James Bible rate, the Book of Mormon rate, and the pseudo-biblical text rate. They are desire, 66.7, 93.1, 50. Command, 25.5, 77.2, Suffer, 4.6, 62.6, Cause, 1, 57.6, 0. Make, 0 0.3, 55.6, 0. The large differences in finite complementation rates are apparent. Simple statistical tests of standard deviation indicate that Book of Mormon verbal complementation after these five verbs is more consistent than that of the King James Bible and more consistent than that of the pseudo-biblical set of texts taken as a whole. The five-term correlations are all strong, but the closest is between the King James Bible and the pseudo-biblical set at 0 0.998. What is more noteworthy, statistically speaking, is that the pseudo-biblical set does not approach the Book of Mormon's rate of finite complementation in every case but the verb desire, which isn't sufficiently represented in the four pseudo-biblical texts. The Book of Mormon adopts higher finite complementation rates across the board, independent of biblical usage, and similar to the high command syntax rates found in at least two of William Caxton's late 15th century translations. By employing high doses of finite complementation after verbs, the Book of Mormon contains language that is, from a syntactic standpoint, plainer and more versatile. Such high finite rates are neither biblical, pseudo-biblical, or modern. Averages of the early modern period are also lower than Book of Mormon rates, though closer than the very low averages of the late modern period. Auxiliary usage of the earlier period is a very good match with Book of Mormon usage, as well as dual object tendencies and other less noticeable features mentioned previously. 
This means that if Joseph Smith was the author or English language translator of the Book of Mormon, then he must have deliberately produced all this divergent finite syntax that was the best fit with early modern usage, including ditransitive syntax. Table 4. Archaic ditransitive rates. Instances per million words. The table then lists the verb, the King James Bible with 790,000 words, the Book of Mormon with about 250,000 words, the pseudo-biblical texts with about 125,000 words total. Command, 24, 396, 8. Desire, 11, 64, 0. Suffer, 2, 60, 16. Cause, 0, 48, 0. Make, 1, 16, 0. Moreover, Joseph must have dramatically increased biblical levels of finite complementation while not doing so indiscriminately. That is, he must have occasionally departed from heavy finite usage in a principled manner. It seems quite unlikely that he would have been successful at such a task. No pseudo-biblical author came close to what is found in the Book of Mormon. There are a number of archaic features of complementation missing from the four pseudo-biblical writings in this domain. This argues against Joseph having been the author or English translator of the Book of Mormon. If we approach this from the angle of the pseudo-biblical authors, we realize that they give us an indication of the archaism that Joseph Smith was likely to have produced in this domain, if his effort was a conscious attempt to imitate biblical archaism. He went beyond them in almost every way possible. We reasonably assume that he lacked native speaker early modern English competence, as the pseudo-biblical authors did. They could only go as far as persistent use and biblical knowledge could take them, along with making a reasonable number of analogical connections. Joseph exceeded biblical archaism in a number of ways, matching broader early modern English usage as he did so. The pseudo-biblical set informs us that the verbal complementation he dictated was unlikely for him on multiple levels, rates of finite complementation and ditransitive syntax, as well as modal auxiliary usage. On top of that, the Book of Mormon text contains archaic variational patterns that are not present or discoverable in the pseudo-biblical texts. To finish this discussion of verbal complementation after these five high-frequency verbs, I present here a case of a passive command verb whose embedded verb is suffer, which itself takes an infinitival complement. 1523, John Borchier, translator, Foissar's Chronicles, Books 1 and 2. But they were, straightly, that is strictly, commanded, that they should in no wise suffer him to pass out of the castle. The Book of Mormon example that matches this language is particularly interesting because of the ungraceful switch from a that clause after the verb suffer to an infinitival complement, Mormon 6.6. 6. And knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord that I should not suffer that the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites. Yet there are occasional cases in the textual record of this same midstream complementation switch. Here is one with the same verb, suffer. 1598, A.M., translator, Jacques Guillemot's The French Surgery, which was also an occasion of his recension, 
that is cure, because he suffered that the truncheon of a lance, which struck clean through his head, too, be with force and violence drawn thereout. And here's another example of this same syntax after the verb command. 1485, Thomas Mallory, Le Mort d'Arthur, written about 1469. And anon the king commanded that, none of them upon pain of death, to missay them, that is, revile them, nay, that is, nor, do them any harm. Various idiosyncrasies of English, such as the above finite to infinitival complementation switch, are often found in the earliest texts of the Book of Mormon. Many of these textual oddities are not clear candidates for being examples of the bad grammar that Joseph Smith might have employed. Verbal complementation after the adjective desirous. Closely related to verbal complementation after the verb desire is complementation after the adjective desirous. This subsection briefly discusses the usage, since, once again, Book of Mormon syntax is utterly different from the corresponding biblical and pseudo-biblical syntax. Finite complementation rates. Finite clauses governed by the adjective desirous. King James Bible, 0% out of three instances. Book of Mormon, 43.1% out of 58 instances. Pseudo-biblical texts, 0% out of three instances. The sheer number of instances of the adjective desirous taking verbal complements in the Book of Mormon differs from the usage found in the King James Bible and the four pseudo-biblical writings considered here. An examination of the Early English Books Online database suggests that this Book of Mormon syntax corresponds best with language from the middle of the early modern period. Pseudo-biblical texts have very few examples of this language. Leacock's and Hunt's texts do not have any instances of the adjective desirous. The few instances they do contain are either infinitival or participial, modern in construction. 1793, Richard Snowden, The American Revolution, 9-4. Yet he was desirous to do something to please the king his master and gain a little honor to himself. 1809, Matthew Linning, Book of Napoleon, 13-12 and 36. And that thou art desirous to foretaste the dreary night of death, if, O people of Albion, ye are truly desirous of preserving and enjoying the many and invaluable blessings which the goodness of providence has vouchsafed to you. Lenning's second example employs of with two present participles rather than two with infinitives. According to the Google Books Ngram viewer, desirous of became the favored form only after the middle of the 18th century. By the year 1800, desirous of was more than twice as common as desirous to. The Book of Mormon doesn't have of usage after the adjective desirous. In this way, syntactically speaking, it is not a modern text in its verbal complementation following the adjective desirous dozens of times. Excluding the apocrypha, the adjective desirous takes verbal complements in the King James Bible only three times, despite having nearly three times as many words as the Book of Mormon. This means that the biblical usage rate of desirous in this regard is less than 2% the rate of the Book of Mormon. In each of the three biblical cases, the complements are infinitival. Luke 23.8 For he was desirous to see him of a long season. John 16.19 Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. 
2 Corinthians 11.32. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas the king kept the city of the Damascenes with a garrison, desirous to apprehend me. The governor is the understood subject of the desirous clause, and the verb be is lifted. Based on little data, the finite complementation rate of the King James Bible following this adjective is 0%. In contrast, the Book of Mormon's finite complementation rate is close to 43%, 25 of 58 instances. Because the King James Bible and two of the pseudo-biblical texts are strictly non-finite in their scarce usage of the adjective desirous with verbal complements, they have no examples of the following finite syntactic structures, which are fairly common in the Book of Mormon. Subject, be verb, desirous, that, subject, should, infinitive, 19 instances. Subject, be verb, desirous, that, subject, might, infinitive, 6 instances. The Book of Mormon has six examples of the second type listed above, where the subjects are the same. 1 Nephi 10.17, 1 Nephi 17.18, Mosiah 25.17, two instances, Alma 14.2, Alma 23.16, two of these are shown below. That the Book of Mormon has six of these is noteworthy, since this figure is close to the number that I have currently been able to isolate in approximately 25,000 early English books online phase one texts. As a result, had Joseph Smith been responsible for the wording found in the six examples of this grammatical construction, it is very likely that the phraseology would have been infinitival or participial. In the two examples that follow, I have recast the language into what I have determined to be the more likely wording for Joseph to have used if he had been responsible for rendering the words into English. In the following recasting of these excerpts, the same substantives are used along with the adjective desirous. First Nephi 17.18 And thus my brethren did complain against me, and were desirous that they might not labor. Recast And thus my brethren complained against me, and were desirous not to labor. Alma 14.2 But the more part of them were desirous that they might destroy Alma and Amulek. Recast, but most of them were desirous to destroy Alma and Amulek. The same reality is present throughout the text of the Book of Mormon, making it highly improbable that the wording flows from what Joseph's own biblically influenced language might have been. Summary of Findings Areas addressed in this study have included the following items of linguistic usage, agentive of and by, lest syntax, personal that, which, and who, whom, Paraphrastic did, obsolete more part phraseology, pluperfect had spake, the th plural, and patterns of verbal complementation governed by the verbs cause, command, desire, make, and suffer. Also the adjective desirous. Here's a summary of the comparative grammatical findings. Agentive of and by. The Book of Mormon is broadly archaic in this regard, approaching King James levels. Pseudo-biblical writings have little agentive of usage. Lest syntax. The overall Book of Mormon pattern is not biblical, pseudo-biblical, or modern. Shall is used as a modal auxiliary more than a dozen times, and there is rare, mixed, should-shall use. The entire King James Bible has only one passage with shall, three instances, and no mixed should-shall use. Pseudo-biblical writings do not have any examples with shall. Relative pronoun usage with personal antecedents. The Book of Mormon's overall personal relative pronoun usage pattern is not biblical, pseudo-biblical, 
or modern. This solid authorship marker argues strongly against Joseph Smith wording the earliest text. Paraphrastic did. Joseph Smith was unlikely to have produced the ubiquitous past tense syntax of the Book of Mormon. Its high rate and syntactic distribution are 16th century in character, not pseudo-biblical or biblical. More part phraseology. Book of Mormon usage is similar to what we see in several writings of the first half of the early modern era. We don't find this obsolete phrase in pseudo-biblical writings. Scant King James usage left no impression on them in this regard. Had been spake. This leveled past participle form is absent from the King James Bible and pseudo-biblical writings. The Book of Mormon's use of had been spake and of which hath been spoken, rare and very uncommon usage of the 17th century respectively, strongly suggests that the twelve instances of had spake in the earliest text are best classified as early modern English morphosyntax. The TH plural. The Book of Mormon provides a nearly complete view of the diverse possibilities of TH inflection in earlier English. Neither the King James Bible nor pseudo-biblical writings do. Verbal complementation. One cannot generate the Book of Mormon's heavy, finite complementation rates from biblical, pseudo-biblical, or modern syntactic patterns. Only deep knowledge of early modern English possibilities generates its archaic auxiliary usage, heavy doses of, a di of ditransitive syntax, and principled variation. The above comparative linguistic evidence indicates that the Book of Mormon was not fashioned in the image of pseudo-biblical writings, or in the image of the King James Bible, or in the image of Joseph Smith's own language. Nevertheless, Book of Mormon language contains a wealth of archaic forms and structures. This runs counter to the received view of many commentators who have imagined it to be a flawed imitation of biblical language. A variety of substantive linguistic evidence argues that Book of Mormon grammar is deeply and broadly archaic and very different in one case after another from both pseudo-biblical grammar and King James style. Many more types of syntax could be given, but the above is sufficient to dismiss the view that pseudo-biblical writings approach the Book of Mormon in archaic form and structure. Those who espouse such a view have ignored crucial syntactic and morphosyntactic evidence. Biblical hypercorrection. It is often possible to come up with creative links between Book of Mormon and King James usage. It would be no problem for me to do so in many instances. However, if biblical hypercorrection is properly constrained to cases of actual biblical usage, then it ultimately lacks explanatory value vis-a-vis -vis Book of Mormon grammar, as it fails to explain many individual cases and plenty of systematic usage. In the following list, I mention a few of the issues beyond a lack of pseudo-biblical support, which is generally the case. Agentive of and by. This is a potential case of considerable biblical influence rather than hypercorrection. Joseph Smith outperformed the four pseudo-biblical authors in this domain. Lest syntax. The Book of Mormon's heavy lest-shall usage is a candidate for biblical hypercorrection, but there is mixed should-shall used to account for. If this is a hypercorrection, then Joseph was successful in noticing and expanding on rare biblical usage and matching rare early modern English variation. Relative pronoun usage with personal antecedents. If one views the Book of Mormon's heavy personal which usage as a biblical hypercorrection, then one must 1. Ignore the more likely hypercorrection of personal that. 2. Accept Joseph being able to dictate about a thousand times against subconscious preferences. 
three, disregard correspondence with some less common early modern English usage, and four, dismiss counter-evidence from Joseph's 1832 history, which has archaizing elements in it. Paraphrastic did. Bowen views this as a biblical hypercorrection. Things to be explained are the Book of Mormon's possibly unmatched rate of did infinitive adjacency in the 19th century, and the good correlation with individual verb tendencies of the early modern period, as discoverable in the early English books online database. More part phraseology. The case for biblical hypercorrection must be weighed against Book of Mormon usage of the more parts of his gospel, the more parts of the Nephites, and a more part of it. Joseph was successful in consistently modifying the phraseology against rare biblical usage as well as matching rare early modern English variants. He had been spake. There is no direct biblical support for this morphosyntax. The King James Bible doesn't employ leveled past participles, although the American pseudo-biblical authors do occasionally with other verbs. As a result, it's a stretch to say that the use of past tense spake as a past participle is a biblical hypercorrection. The TH plural. There is partial pseudo-biblical support, but virtually no biblical support, a handful of potential cases that are less than clear. The case for biblical hypercorrection is weakened by, among other things, the Book of Mormon's high usage rate compared with that of the 18th century pseudo-biblical texts and its non-biblical use of TH forms with plural pronouns as occurred in earlier English. Verbal complementation. Biblical hypercorrection cannot explain several features of the Book of Mormon's extended cause syntax without recourse to analogy, and there's no biblical precedent for the ditransitive causative with a repeated it. In addition, there are quite a few grammatical features and patterns associated with the other four verbs that lack a direct biblical connection. Finally, the Book of Mormon's finite complementation rates with four of these verbs are drastically different from biblical and pseudo-biblical rates. If one desires to view Book of Mormon grammar as a case of biblical hypercorrection, then one must have a liberal interpretation of hypercorrection in order to place so much extra-biblical early modern English usage under this umbrella. An analyst must be quite creative to argue that Joseph could have produced all the archaic grammar. The pseudo-biblical texts indicate that each of the following Book of Mormon features was unlikely to have been produced by Joseph Smith. Robust agentive of less shall syntax, heavy personal which, high rates of did infinitive adjacency, indefinite and plural more part phraseology, had been spake, and of which hath been spoken, diverse th plural usage, and syntactically rich verbal complementation. The multiplication of unlikely features is a textual scenario that was extremely unlikely for Joseph to produce. In every case listed above, and in many others not discussed here, he outperformed the pseudo-biblical authors in generating archaisms of earlier English, both biblical and non-biblical. Alternative LDS Views Some LDS commentators have assumed that a transmitted words view of the Book of Mormon translation involved a one-time translation of a text by a single English speaker who lived during the early modern period. This tends to make the position of revealed words or tight control appear untenable and naive. If it was a one-time translation, then it could have been close in time to 1828 and 1829, but with multiple inputs that reflected varied English competence. 
It also could have been a series of translation events. We have no way of being sure of these things without further revelation. There are quite a few possibilities from our limited perspective, which might prevent us from coming close to a knowledge of how the translation of the Book of Mormon into English transpired. As mentioned toward the outset of this study, a number of LDS scholars believe that Joseph Smith's mind was saturated with biblical language, and that on that basis he could have produced the text of the Book of Mormon from a mixture of biblical language and his own dialect. See note 7. Opposed to this position is a growing body of descriptive linguistic evidence that there is a substantial amount of archaic vocabulary and syntax in the Book of Mormon that does not match King James' idiom. The text is archaic and non-biblical in many structural ways. If we accept that Joseph's mind was saturated with biblical language, then the earliest text's overall form and structure argued that he did not produce it. Ultimately, the descriptive linguistic facts overturn views of Book of Mormon language that depend on his mind being imbued with biblical ways of expression. That being the case, Gardner 2011 and Barlow 2013 have effectively ended up arguing, unintentionally, against Joseph's being the English language translator or author of the Book of Mormon text. Had he produced the text from his own biblically saturated language, the form and structure of the Book of Mormon would be quite different and much more pseudo-biblical in its structure. Theoretically speaking, the profile of the person required for crafting much of the English language of the Book of Mormon was a first-rate independent philologist, someone extremely knowledgeable in the linguistics and literature of earlier English, but not beholden to following King James' patterns. Conclusion this data-driven study has provided substantial linguistic evidence against the view that at least one pseudo-biblical writing, usually thought to be Gilbert J. Hunt's The Late War, had a noticeable influence on the composition of the Book of Mormon. Ultimately, I find this position to be indefensible because of a large amount of contradictory descriptive linguistic data of the kind that has high probative value. Relevant morphosyntactic analysis tells us that the form and structure of the Book of Mormon could not have been produced from a knowledge of pseudo-biblical writings, or for that matter, from a knowledge of only late modern English and biblical English. As a result, even if Joseph had grown up reading and rereading the late war, it would not have given him the ability to produce Book of Mormon grammar. That required extensive knowledge of a wide range of extra-biblical earlier English mostly 16th and 17th century in character, but also including usage from before and after the early modern period. In a nutshell, the Book of Mormon text exhibits high levels of archaic morphosyntax. The pseudo-biblical texts exhibit much lower levels of archaic morphosyntax. A, a sufficient and accurate knowledge of the form and structure of the earliest text of the Book of Mormon reveals that the late war pales in comparison with the Book of Mormon in terms of archaic usage. In fact, the other three pseudo-biblical texts are more archaic than Hunt's text in many different linguistic domains. In view of these linguistic facts, had Joseph created literature like The Late War, or had this pseudo-biblical writing or another comparable text taught Joseph how to fashion older biblical language, or influenced his dictation to scribes, etc., the form of the earliest text of the Book of Mormon would be very different. It would be both more biblical and more modern in character as we find is the case with the four pseudo-biblical writings considered in this study. Because the Book of Mormon has so much extra-biblical vocabulary and syntax, its usage cannot be classified as a biblical dialectal mixture either.
Furthermore, there is plenty of quote-unquote bad grammar not attributable to Joseph Smith. In addition, as shown in a recent paper, Joseph's 1832 history is different syntactically from the earliest text in three important ways. Moreover, the subject-verb agreement and forms that have led LDS scholars to attribute the language to Joseph for so many years have turned out to be a good fit with some language of the early modern period. Newly available digital databases make this clear. Because we now have a critical text and searchable databases of earlier English, the Book of Mormon can be shown to be genuinely archaic. Although these facts may clash with favored ideologies, the view that the Book of Mormon is, in its form and structure, a clumsy parody of the King James Bible no longer holds up to scrutiny. Stanford Carmack has a linguistics and a law degree from Stanford University, as well as a doctorate in Hispanic languages and literature from the University of California, Santa Barbara, specializing in historical syntax. In the past, he has had articles published on Georgian verb morphology and object-participle agreement in Old Spanish and Old Catalan. He currently researches Book of Mormon syntax as it relates to early modern English and contributes by means of textual analysis to Volume 3 of the Book of Mormon Critical Text Project, directed by Royal Skousen. This has been a recording of Is the Book of Mormon a Pseudo-Archaic Text? by Stanford Carmack. Originally published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 28, 2018, read by Victor Worth. This audio recording is copyrighted under a Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles and resources on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com.